Today's Center Reefs Nation podcast was brought to you by Manscaped. Head to manscaped.com and use the promo code capital C, capital L, Nation, and to receive 20% off plus free delivery on all their products. Welcome to this podcast of Sanders Nation. This is Pat LaRusso, and I'll soon be joined by my co-host, Anthony Sino, where we'll be discussing the comments made uh, earlier this week by Brandon Shanahan in regards to big hits and fighting in today's NHL. And we also have a special guest uh, in our second segment of today's podcast, uh, where we'll be speaking to Benjamin Davidson, uh, Maple Leafs fan and author of the book, Murphy's Boy. So here we are with uh, my co-host Anthony Sino. Welcome back for another week. How how has this past week gone for you? Um, not too bad, Pat. Thanks for asking. Pretty much the same. Been uh, been following a little bit a little bit too much U.S. politics for my uh, than I'm used to. Really, with no sports on, it's really the only thing that's been on TV uh, all week. But uh, other than that, um, just watching Champions League and uh, NFL football. So there's nothing really new for me from a from an entertainment perspective, but um, just trying to get a fl- last few uh, golf rounds in before the weather turns. Excellent. This is definitely the week four with uh, plus 16, plus 17. I know. For what looks like right. it's going right into Sunday. So, exactly. you know, let's not complain. Let's not complain with this mild weather while we still have it. Um, you know, as a team, we were laughing offline about, you know, where we're going to get content and what are we going to talk about? And then bang, it happens this week. Um, Leafs president Brendan Shanahan appears on the smart list podcast with Will Arnett, um, and a couple other, uh, Hollywood celebrities and they discuss hockey, uh, where it's going. Um, and he made a comment, um, that seems to have rubbed some in Leafs nation, um, a little the wrong way. Uh, where he was discussing how he prefers the big goal over the big hit um, and how, you know, he he respects the way he played the game but definitely doesn't want to see a player get injured. So now, you know, he's even advocating for less stage fighting where a player could be um, severely injured. Um, Anthony, I just want to get your, you know, your quick thoughts on what you thought of those comments and, um, and, and kind of where you stand you know, are you are you for or against that stance? Um, yeah. So overall, I don't really think that that Shanahan said anything too controversial to the point that um, some people on Twitter were making it out to be. Um, and I and I and I say that in in uh, in the sense that like people want to. There are uh, the unfortunate reality is that people still want to preserve the game of hockey to what it was 30 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, And the fact of the matter is, is that it's just not possible anymore. Um, And it's kind of been uh, 
just just through the, the the types of players that are entering the league, right, and the types of players that are leaving the league. Um, you see guys like, uh, I believe Joe Thornton or Zidane Chara will be the oldest players in the NHL next year. Like, they're into their early 40s, and you just don't see those types of players and uh, that a type of player like Zidane Chara anymore, right? Like, there's no and and funny enough, a guy like Char came into the league where he was kind of like just this really tall, skinny guy, never really wanted to hit anybody. And then it wasn't until he joined the league in like the late '90s or early 2000s where where he the, his coaches were basically like, "Look, you need to start fighting and being physically intimidating to people, or else you're not going to play in this league." So I think the expectation from from coaches has changed. And uh, avenues to get to the NHL have changed, right? So yes. the, I, I just don't think that that we're we're gonna see people that are that are just strictly making the roster because they're a staged fighter. Um, yes, and and it's and it's just like the the way that hockey has has grown to the point where it's it's it favors speed and it favors skill, right? But yes. I'm of the I'm of the the opinion that that's not all hockey is, and I still think that's not all hockey will become. I don't think you're going to get to a point where there's no contact in hockey. Um, so I think I find myself in the middle of this kind of uh, it, it, the debate where I'm I, I very much align with what Shanahan's saying. Where um, the direct quote is, I have it up here. Is like I uh, people. Uh, People get pissed off. I know people get pissed off at me when I say this, but I don't get excited to see a big hit. I get excited when I see a big goal. Uh, he doesn't want to see anybody get carried off on a stretcher, like you said, but then he goes on to say, if I see a fight in hockey and it's because someone was protecting somebody or somebody was bullying somebody and you're addressing it, there's st- probably still a place for that in hockey, but using it as a tool to intimidate or hurt, I don't know it's going away from that. So... It, it, to, to a T, he he explains the game right. Like you, you don't you're yes. not gonna, you don't see Colt Nor anymore. You don't see George Peros anymore. You don't see Fraser McLaren anymore. Like the there's you're not gonna see the, those types of players in the league anymore. People that were there that they knew that like when when Colton Nor stepped into Montreal and uh, I know everyone would remember the game. Actually, I do. I believe it was opening night in Montreal a few years back, and I think Shanahan might have been the president. He might have still been in the Department of Player Safety. But Colt, do you, I wonder if you remember it, Pat? Colt Nor fought George Peros. Yes. Uh, and George Peros is lying motionless on the ice in the Bell Center. That yeah. to me, like seeing that live, um, was was pretty scary. And uh, and I just think that it's. That that there, you'll never see that again. You'll never have players on NHL rosters where they know, okay, they have a fighter, and I'm just get, I'm literally in the lineup tonight to fight that guy, maybe twice, yeah. right? So, uh, what do you think about it? For me, when I, so when I first read the comments, I actually took a step back, and then I looked at some of the tweets that were coming out, and you know, people were saying, well, what well, it's kind of rich for Brandon Shanahan to be saying this. You know, has he forgotten about where he's come from or his career? And I look at it from a different perspective. When I look at Brandon Shanahan and I look at his generation of player, how many of them died prematurely due to CTE? 
you know, we know more today than they did in Brandon Shanahan's peak of his career about mental health and brain injury. Um, so when I look at, you know, guys like Bob Probert and even some of the more contemporary guys like Wade Belak and Rick Rippin and some of the others that died prematurely because of CT, because of depression. Derek, Derek Bugard. Derek Bugard is another. Those um, had a lot to do with with uh, pain medication as well, though, right? Like uh, overdosing of. Well, because they weren't. Well, because they weren't properly, like they weren't taken care of, right? That that no. just doesn't have to do with CTE. That has to do with the system of of doctors in the NHL not properly educating well, players on the the medication they're taking. But also, too, it just compounded it, right? Because I think at the time, you know, as much as they knew that there may have been a correlation with concussion and fighting, um, I don't know if they knew. Like, they didn't have, like, the spotter system in. Or they didn't have, like, a guy is automatically gone for about a week just to kind of assess his symptoms. Like they, Or is it two weeks, Anthony? Uh, the, I know that, they're, that they're, if, it's a brain, if it's a suspected brain injury, they are out of the lineup for, you I think know, it's 10 days. Is it, it 10 be, days? It might be 10 days. Right. So they're doing a lot more to kind of mitigate because it, it, it's not even just the fighting. It's the multiple concussions. Like, you know, we had um, Dan Corsillo earlier on in the year and we discussed, you know, his career and how many concussions he faced. And I think he mentioned 13 or 14 concussions over the course of his career. Like mm -hmm. that. It's the compounding of the of the head injuries and the concussions that, that didn't help the situation either for a lot of these players. So. When I hear Brandon Shanahan saying this, I think he's looking at it from the longevity of the game, you know, and, and even too the demographic in North America is changing. So to sell the game of hockey, you're more inclined to get an, an average or casual or brand new fan to hockey when you can throw out an Austin Matthews or a Connor McDavid or a Mitch Marner or, you know, some but, of these. But so Pat, many that's other not, sorry to interrupt, but um, so I agree with you to a sense, but. I don't think using Austin Matthews as a comparable to like um, you're going to see more Austin Matthews because those guys come, those are the unique case of skilled players in the game. I think what you need to think of is um, uh, I, the alignment that I would say is like a guy like Nick Patan. Okay. Now, Nick Patan is kind of like a quad A player, but you could tell that he has the skill to play in an NHL lineup. 25 years ago, Nick Patan doesn't even get a sniff in the NHL, yeah. right? A guy that is is not skilled enough, uh, is not maybe skilled enough to play in your top six, but he's also, like, he's not going to bring you uh, physicality in the bottom six, right? Yeah. I think paving the way for those types of players to make the league is where you see the biggest difference now. Now, if you're going down the lines of, Okay, if you're trying to sell tickets, Austin Matthews has a better chance of selling tickets than Fraser McLaren and George Peros fighting that night. I agree with you 100%. Right? That that yes. demographic has changed completely. Is that what you were trying to say? Yeah, yeah. So it's not to say that every player is going to be the upper echelon like a Conor McDavid or Austin Matthews, but I think as the game pivots to more skill, I think it opens the game up to a different audience that it doesn't have now. And when we're looking at the longevity of the game and money and revenue, um, the only way the NHL is ever going to get into that upper echelon of TV deals is they've got to get a bigger chunk of the American sports market. They just have to. And outside of the, you know, the traditional hockey markets, there's still some mar ho like 
cities and markets in the NHL right now where hockey is is probably like the last page of the sports section. And I it really needs to appeal to a larger demographic. Money yeah. talks. And you know, the, and another thing um, that was brought up in our interview with Dan Carcillo as well is the league also has a financial risk if a player gets injured because you know, as we're seeing now with a lot of these retired players, is now they're filing class action suits about you know some of the issues that they're currently experiencing and the risk that mm-hmm. you know that they weren't necessarily communicated um, properly in regards to. So there's it's it's a large it's uh, for me now when I watch the sport. I watch it for the entertainment, the speed, the excitement. Um, I went back and tried to watch some of the games, you know, on Leaf TV from back like early two thousands and then and the and in the nineties. And the game just seems so slow. All the clutching and grabbing, you know, it just it does it lacks the flow. And for me, when I'm talking to my friends about the game, I'm talking about did you see that highlight of Connor McDavid or did you see that amazing pass by Mitch Martin or did you see what, you know, Panarin did? And you know what I mean? Like, my conversations have evolved. And I think that is, and I think that's essentially what Brandon Shanahan was trying to communicate, is that the game is evolving. And I think we need to continue down this path because it makes the game much more, much more entertaining. And you can still have your big hits. And, you know, but I, I don't think you're going to get, like, your Scott Stevens or, you know, where it's, it's going to be that it's a huge hit. It's going to be a shoulder to a possible head. And, you know, violence isn't necessarily the entertainment. And it's not the end goal in hockey. It's not the UFC where the more violence you inflict on, a, on, a, you know, on the competition means that you're going to win. You know, like, violence isn't necessarily a direct impact to the final score and, and the determination um, of the game. Yeah, so now that you mentioned that, I'm just going to jump in here. So um, I also think that, that that's on the league Um to, to police that right so we're we're we we got to think in the bigger picture here and and let's and let's bring it to our last uh our off-season podcast since the Leafs have been knocked out of the playoffs what have we been um pressing the Leafs go out and get go and get more grit go out and get more size heaviness around the puck the reason being and again I'm gonna say it the unfortunate reality is is that the NHL play the Stanley Cup playoffs are called completely differently than the yes. NHL regular season. The refs swallow the whistle, and that's what, and that's the way it is. So until that changes, teams will tailor their rosters to be like that. Now, I'm not saying that I don't enjoy uh, the scrums after the whistle, the 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 com- the competitive grit that you see on players and the anger, right? Like yeah. I've said this countless oh, times. Oh, I'm all for that. I want, I'm all for that. I, I, if, I, if I was on that ice, I am so enraged at Zidane O'Char when he plays and he, <laughs> when he sucker punches like a guy like John Tavares in that game seven. I was yeah. so enraged. I wanted to go and just clock him right in the mouth. Now, I'd probably need like a stepladder to get to his teeth, right? Because the guy's so big. But And still point, a booster seat. Yeah, the point <laughs> is, is that you need... You need, like, fans want players to care. They want players to feel the same emotion that they feel about watching the game, right? But it's it's kind of tailoring that emotion and ter- and matriculating it into um, a more effective way of of competitiveness and grit. Yeah. Whereas, like, 
you need to be able to police the dirtiness and mitigate the risk of injury of these players because nobody nobody wants to see anybody get stretchered off like Shanahan no. says. I played hockey my entire life and I've seen people get stretchered off and it is to be in a in a in a in a ice rink no matter how many fans are in the stands, right? It's it's shocking, it's scary, right? Yeah. And you it, it's it's very sad to see because people's lives can change in an instant and it's for stupidity, right? Yeah. So at the same time I've seen the game evolve in my own, in front of my own eyes, not just as a fan, but also as a as a minor hockey player, right? Baseline testing for concussion changed immensely since I started playing to yes. when I when I left uh, when I finished playing, right? So yes. the game has taken steps to to monitor and keep track and of these injuries and uh, and what the possible brain damage that could be occurring in the game of hockey, right? But it's on the league to make the sport safe for kids so that parents feel comfortable putting them on skates, putting them on the ice, and having them play the game. Because that is where you start growing your game to a point where the money starts flowing in and you're not on the back page of a newspaper in the United States. You're, you're getting primetime coverage in all in in all uh, demographics of the United States, and we already know that hockey's number one in Canada. Yes, but we know that the demographic of Canada is changing. So that, like, if you're not evolving, you're you're already you're losing, right? Someone's yes. catching up to you, right? And we see, and we know basketball's catching up to hockey right now in Canada. So, and I think the twenty twenty six World Cup of soccer will is coming right so we know that that's coming we i think soccer is on the rise in this country as well they already have a poster boy for it in alfonso davies um and in women's soccer the i think her uh jordan heitma that's a girl too that has been i think i think she plays for psg uh the women's team in uh, in paris right so yes. the hockey or sorry soccer and basketball have these figures now that are making kids want to start playing these sports as opposed to hockey if you yeah. can't get your best athletes playing the game, then you're losing. So hockey yeah. needs to change in the sense that you can't if, – if, like to me, it makes me sick when, when parents still to this day, you go into a minor hockey rink and they see a big hit. Their 12-year-old kid is playing and, and a big hit happens with a 12-year-old kid, right? And yes. the kid's laying on the ice like in clear pain. And you see parents clapping, like to me that that just it, it it's a large just gross pit in my stomach, just thinking of that because that's not the way that hockey uh, is supposed to be played. Shame on those parents that do it. Shame on the parents that um, that promote the violence. Like I, I'm not I I get it though that people get caught up in the moment. Like I've seen it, I've lived it. That pe- it's easy to get caught up in the moment of the game at the time, but you got to yes. think of the bigger picture of like what what's best for this game, and the yes. best thing for this game is not getting rid of hitting. I actually think kids need to learn how to do body contact earlier, but invest the the NHL and the II the double IHF need to invest the money in programs where kids. Separate kids from the puck without hurting them. You understand what I'm saying? 
Yep, most definitely. And for me, the way I look at it um, is it's at the end of the day, um, you know, we need the we need the game. The game needs to sell itself. Um, the speed, the skill, the goals. I I personally, as an overall, once again, you know, we at the end of the day, you know, we both based on our opinions, we both circle back that Brandon Shanahan's comments weren't at all controversial. Um, I truly understand where he's coming from with those comments. Um, I think the game just, even without those comments, it's naturally going in that direction. And I know that there's a, a subsection in Leafs Nation that feels like the league is stuck in this goon environment and the Leafs are the only ones getting away from it. But I think I looked at a stat um, back when, you know, as I was researching for, you know, an interview back earlier on this year, where I think even just fighting and major penalties have been down, you know, I think fighting has been down, what, 60, 65% from, you know, pre-cap era till now. Like, the game is evolving. Brandon Shanahan is just reflecting that change. Um, you know, and from for you and just from a Leafs perspective, I'm actually happy that the Leafs might actually be ahead of a curve of some sort. Um, because, as you know, the Leafs were behind the curve in preparing for the salary cap. And it cost us years of pain. Um, you know, we we always lack something in the roster. So it's kind of nice that, you know, the Leafs are pivoting. And it's kind of nice that the president and GM, you know, are on the same page on such a major philosophical um, decision such as this. And, and, and on the same game plan when it comes to even building out the roster. Absolutely. Yeah, I concur. Well, thanks, Anthony, for your time today. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Nope. Um, I think uh, I think we pretty much said it all. Um, just again, right? It's we're we're all craving for content. So when that thing came out, I think that um, people were eager to jump on it. But again, we got to take a look at the bigger picture here. Um, and it's again, right? Pe- people are going to defend what they believe in. Um, and, uh, I just think as, as the game, as the game continues on, right. Um, I think the, the strong opinionated people that want stage fighting into the game, those people are going to be weeded out of the, of, of hockey fan bases, uh, completely, hopefully. So let, let's, that, I think the game is on its path to changing for the better. Most definitely. Uh, so thanks again, Anthony. And, uh. You know, it has been a great conversation as always, and we'll, we'll be doing this again next week. Stay safe. Yep. yep, sounds good. Thanks, Pat. Cheers. So, welcome. We have a very special guest for uh, Season 4, Episode 9. We have huge Leaf fan. Benjamin Davidson, and also author of the book, Murphy's Boy. Welcome to the Saturday Nation podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Excellent, excellent. So, Benjamin, you know, offline, you and I have been discussing some of your favorite Maple Leaf and hockey memories. Um, you know, let's just start off, you know, how did you ever become a Leaf fan? And, and sort of, you know, what is like your biggest or most favorite uh, memory? I would say that I was, I've been a fan ever since I've been a kid. My family are diehard Leaf fans. And I think just growing up in and around the Toronto area, um, you, you become a Leafs fan pretty quickly and, and you hate Ottawa. So it, 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 it's pretty easy. It, it's actually funny for me to see 
that we pick up former Ottawa Senators players like Spezza. And I look at him, and every time I see him, I'm like, I used to hate you so much. But, <laughs> but, but now he's on the team, so you gotta, you got to cheer for him, right? Um, yes. But in terms of, uh, in terms of, I guess, it's strange because my favorite hockey moment is actually after I was a kid um, when I was working as a third party for uh, the Leafs and the Raptors. And luckily, I got to be there for the Matt Sundin retirement ceremony. Oh, wow. Which was a really cool moment. And I did something right before the ceremony started, a couple hours before the ceremony started. I took one of my staff down to to the ice. And I could have got in a lot of trouble for this. But (laughs) I walked out to, I think I was like two feet from center ice. And somebody was like, hey, what are you doing? I was like... Nothing, nothing. I I got to get out of here. So, I booked it pretty quickly, and luckily didn't get uh, didn't get kicked out or or fired from my job at the time. Excellent, excellent. Um, so you know another reason why we're having on, and we you know we you know you were mentioning you know how you just wrote a book and it's just been released. Um, you know what is you know the book or how did it ever start? Um, you know sort of what is the background of your book Murphy's Boy and sort of what's the basis of it? Um. So Murphy's Boy is a book that started when I was living in Spain, and uh, it's actually quite relevant and, and recent. Um, the coronavirus has, had hit, and I'd been watching it come out of China, and eventually it got into Spain. And I had posted this message um, for the first time. I, I had gone on Facebook and social media for five years, and I posted a message just kind of warning people and saying, like, look, this is real. Um it's pretty serious and don't let this happen to your country because my wife, my partner, she, she's an, she's a neurologist and she got drafted to work in a COVID unit okay. and, and then it became really real. Um, but then I, but then from there it just kind of kept spiraling because I saw so many people, I don't know, musicians working, uh, for free and just playing every day for people or artists doing things, whatever it may be. So I started writing and I started writing and posting a chapter of it every day for 90 days straight. Okay. And it was just kind of these baby steps where I didn't even know that I was writing a book, but it just kind of turned into this thing and, and people started reading it. And I remember, I think it was part four. Um, I think it was a friend commented and said oh who knew that you could write wow and I was I kind of chuckled to myself and I was like oh they didn't know they, they didn't know that I had this in me because I had been writing for years but I had never shared it with anybody so yes it, it was a cool moment to be able to do that but I wanted to tell this the human side of, of the story of what was going on rather than people just seeing the numbers Yes. Um, that, that we see on the news and uh, and let them know that there is hope, but there's also a grimness to it. And I get into some trouble. Um, it's 100% nonfiction, so I get into some trouble a few times and find my way out of it, luckily. And then as I was writing, I started, people were asking, like, what happened to me? Where Where had I been for the last five years? I started throwing in flashbacks of my youth and childhood leading up to where I was hoping that it would kiss itself, that I would be able to end where I started. 
but basically what happened was uh, I found my ending on day 90. But so just to give you a quick, the cliff notes of, of my childhood, uh, ran away from home when I was 14, uh, started living with my estranged mother who was mentally ill and taking care of her, had to drop out of high school three separate occasions, uh, was homeless three separate times between the ages of 16 to 22, got my GED, uh, ended up going to college with it, and then getting headhunted out of college and, and ending up in the GTA and eventually in, in Toronto. So it's, it's a lot of that. Uh, grew up around thugs, drugs, and, and criminals and in the ghetto of sorts at, when I was younger. Um, so there's some hard times that, that go in there. And it, there's moments that will make you bust the gut. There's moments that will punch you in the gut. There's moments that will rip your heart out. Um, I don't, I don't hold anything back when I write it. So it's just, it's this visceral book that, uh, people seem to be enjoying, which is kind of cool. I, I didn't know I could do it. No, excellent. And, you know, you brought up some very personal moments in your life, you know, a lot of hardship. Was there ever a moment that you kind of felt, you know, maybe do I, do, that you had to hold back that you didn't want to share a certain story or a certain aspect of a moment of your life where, you know, because writing this story clearly sounds like it was a very personal experience for you. And I know for a lot of people, it, the easiest way to get over that little hump is to kind of clean up the story and, and like I don't I, and be fearful of a judgment based, you know, based on from a particular reader or how someone might perceive a certain situation that you've written about. How did you overcome that? Uh, well, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of people were saying it's shocking how vulnerable. I would be or, or the courage that I had to, to kind of tell these stories and for me I was just being honest um, there was one moment I think it was part 38 on day 38 where I almost pulled my punches I almost pulled them and and my partner uh, my wife she was like you're pulling back on this one and I was like okay I, I'm gonna tell this whole story and then I think after that, I mean, I was telling the truth the whole way there, but I think it was part 39. That's where I really start dropping the hard flashbacks. And I mean, like there's moments where I go beast mode. There's, there's moments yes. where I really have to pick myself up. Um, the, there's heartbreaking stuff, but I kind of, by that point, I had realized that it was helping people. Yeah. And I just looked at it like if this could make somebody – um, feel like they can do this themselves, tell their own story, uh, or get up, you know, and I don't know if I can say, can I say BS? Can, yeah, no, you know, we've, yeah, yeah. we've had worse. We've had worse. All right. All right. Well, so, <laughs> so there's a, there's a moment, um, that took place that I write about it and it's later on in the book, but where I say to myself, um, Ain't nobody got time for bullshit or what now bullshit. You got to get up. So yeah. it was just that it was just being real and telling people this is real life. Yes. There's no point in sugarcoating things. There's, you really got to show the world who you are. And once I realized I was writing a book, I kind of started putting 
goals for myself. So the first goal was that I was going to pass uh, Mark Twain's Tom, Tom Sawyer, which was 77,000 words. Yes. And then the next one was Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, uh, which is 137,000 words. And then, mm -hmm. so that was bronze and silver. And then the one after that was Moby Dick, which is 207,000 words. And I didn't know that I was going to be able to hit any of them because, yes. like I said, I didn't know I was writing a book. But by the time I found my ending, I think it ends somewhere around 287,000 words. Okay. So I smoked Melville. Uh, <laughs> and I, w I was impressed with myself with that because I didn't know uh, for the longest time until actually after I had published the book, a friend looked up how long it took him to write Moby Dick, and it took 18 months. And I was like, oh, I did almost, I, I did that one and a half in, in 90 yes. days. So I got hot. I got hot, man. Uh, I just started cooking those words. And that to be, it's, it's an easy read to get into. Uh, yes. It's shorter chapters, but then it really starts picking up the later that you go on. And uh, it's longer chapters. And there's a lot of punch to it. There's funny, funny moments. And it's crazy times that take place you mentioned that you know as you've started you know now that your book's out that it's starting to help others how did this process possibly heal any you know any you know maybe any you know past hurts or pains like did you find that it was therapeutic for yourself as you were writing like were you were you finding that now you're going through your own healing process as you were helping others very much so very much so i it's strange. There's moments where I can read parts of it and it's almost like I'm reading somebody else's story. Yes. And it's kind of like you just poured that stuff out of you. Um, and I told it in such a visceral way that it just, I got it off my own chest. There's also yes. moments where I read the beginning and I'm like, wow, I can see this guy coming back to life. Um, yeah. Because I was a ghost. You couldn't find me even if you tried. And, yes. and more often than not, I wouldn't reply. So... It, no, it's, it's kind of way. funny when you, because we as humans, as different as we are, we do have a lot of these like these common commonalities in our life in our life's journey. Like I was, you know, stricken with cancer six years ago. Had it twice within like a six month period, and it's funny. I am a different person today than I was pre cancer. Like this blog, this interview, this podcast would never have happened if I had never been sick. You know, and it, it's it's given me a different perspective on life. And, and you mentioned like, you know, when I go back and read some of my Facebook posts when I was, you know, sharing with my family and friends my experience and, you know, the scary times. And I call them my holy shit moments where, you know, I had healed physically, but not mentally. And there I was on a TTC subway crying for no reason because it was like, holy shit, I just came out of cancer moment. And it, it, there was no rhyme or reason when they would come. It would just come. Um, so finding that healing and, and looking back at some of my own writing, it's like, shit, man, like I came out of something really crazy and look what's come out of it, you know? So, you know, I definitely see that similar experience with yourself. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And that's the thing. It's, uh, I tell people that it's kind of like an evolution and, yes. and I'm sure you feel the same way that you kind of, you evolve into this new person and sure there's still facets of who you were and you can still understand different pieces of, of how you used to feel about things but you just you look at the world in such a different way 
because yeah. it changes you. And yeah. especially something like going through cancer, I mean, that is heart-wrenching. Heart-wrenching, man. Like, that's... And so to be able to pull yourself up from that a couple times, not just once, and, and then it makes sense. But the thing is, you have to give your you have to give everything you've got inside you yes. to be able to do that, right? Yeah. So I kind of look at it like, you know, when there's a guy that won the Stanley Cup, or or a guy that lost in the Stanley Cup final, and you see him crying, right? Yes. Well, to me, I look at those guys and I say those are the strongest people that you can know. Yeah. Because they gave everything that they had and then they got to this moment whether they won or lost they still won because yes. they knew inside that they gave everything they had right so that's why it, it rips someone's heart out when they when they don't, don't get the trophy or it likewise when they do yes yeah it's no, most because it's it's that reward no most definitely um so, you know, as we wrap up this interview, you know, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find your book, how they can interact with you? Um, sure. You know, maybe, you know, let our listeners know, you know, where they can find you on social media and some of your handles. Because I, I, I really do think that our audience will get a lot interacting with you. I know I have over the last couple of weeks of interacting with you. And I really do think that, you know, your story can have a positive impact given everything that everyone's been going through in 2020. Right. Um... So they can find the book on Amazon if they just type Murphy's Boy by B.A. Davidson. Uh, it's a black and white cover. It's a deserted highway, so it's easy to find that way. They can also find it as an ebook with Kobo or Chapters Indigo. They can also download it off of Amazon for Kindle. Where they can find me is there's a Facebook page called Murphy's Boy 2020. There's also, they can find me on Instagram. Those are basically my two major platforms. Um, and that's Murphy's underscore boy. And actually on that one, it's kind of cool because I've just been, I've been hustling this book because it's something that once you realize that you're good at something, you want it more than you want air. Yes. So yes. I've been doing things like I've been going out and doing a Murphy's Boy book tour where just taking pictures around the city with people holding the book and chatting with people, which is kind of cool. Um, putting up different little quotes that I take from the book, which are kind of neat and, and funny and, and they'll touch people. But then on top of that, what I've been doing recently is I've actually been narrating my own work, which is kind of cool in so many senses because I didn't know that I could do this. So it's funny. I was talking to a friend the other day and they're like, you're so, you're so hyped up about the fact that, that you just like put out this narration and you're yes. listening to it over and over again. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. You don't realize that every time I do something, this is like found money. Yes. I didn't know I could do this. And I had a yes. friend that, that contacted me the other day and we used to play ball hockey together, and, and he actually said to me, I bought your book, and I finished it two, two nights ago. I wanted to surprise you. And I was like, what? You bought my book, first of all, but you actually read it. And he's like, yeah, I, I bought it to support you, but then I started reading it. And I was like, man, you can write. Like, this is good. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's like a textbook, man. Like, I'll show the re – <laughs> 
like this thing is huge because I couldn't yes. make a smaller size on Amazon. It was it was bigger than their page can. So yes. it's a it's a beast, but uh, it's a good Christmas gift if somebody wants to pick it up. Um, it'll keep you occupied, and especially during COVID, uh, it, it'll make you feel all kinds of different emotions. So it's it's worth worth every letter. You know what? This has been a pleasure, Benjamin. Thank you for you know giving us your time and and you know sharing your your story, your book. Um, you know, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners before we wrap up this interview? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. This has been absolutely awesome. Um, second, for the listeners, go easy on the leaves. Just, <laughs> just, just, just remember for a second, you gotta, you gotta look at the leaves not like we're Stanley Cup champions. You gotta look at them like. We're an underdog story. We are a comeback story waiting to happen. And those are the type of stories that I like. I mean, a success story that I like is not a guy that's successful, but a guy that messes his life up and becomes successful after that, right? So yes, you got to look at the Leafs kind of like that. We, we had our glory moments God knows how long ago. But, yes. uh, and we've had little... A little blip little spurts of yeah, little spurts of success, I know. And then there's the lost uh, Ballard eras and none of us want to talk about, but well, I mean, <laughs> a, a, just a funny side note anecdote is uh, I almost broke up with a girl one time because she told me that she was a Boston fan. Oh jeez. I mean, I think that if my name wasn't Ben, I would <laughs> like the letter B. Like, uh, I, I can't stand them. I can't stop knocking us out of the playoffs. And now it's the Blue Jackets. Jesus. So, yeah, you can't win. We can't win as Leaf fans. But hopefully this upcoming year will we'll give us some, uh, you know, some, some more positive things to, uh, to share and to discuss and, and to ride with this franchise that likes to repaint on its followers. Hey, man, J- Jumbo Joe. Jumbo Joe. Hey, Jumbo Joe. He, he's going to be our savior. He's going to be he our was, savior. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping, you know what, if you do, like, I, I have a big thing. Like, we had um, Brock McGillis on, um, and we discussed, um, you know, the Leafs correcting some of their ghosts that have, you know, we, you know when we think about the Ballard curse. Um, and the one thing that he pointed out is if you do, if you have enough moral victories, the atmosphere around the organization changes. And the big thing was, you know, repairing the, the relationship with Dave Keon, you know, bringing in these vets. And celebrating them because that was something that the Leafs did very poorly, you know, in doing in, in, in past. So it's kind of nice to see them rectify some of the wrongs. And yep. here's hoping that if you know they do enough unleafy things, that something unleafy like winning a cup will will come, right? So, look, if it's gonna happen, I got a feeling this could be the year. This could be. I know we say that every year, but this <laughs> year, this year it's gonna be different. Look, it just look fans look at them like an underdog story. We are a comeback story. Like and as soon as we get behind that type of story, anything can happen. Anything can well thanks so much for your positivity. Thank you so much. And uh, you know, we hope to have you on again very shortly. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Cheers. 